I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Villa Park, California. Villa Park is one of the smallest cities in Orange County. It was not incorporated until 1962, but the history of the area goes back to around 1860. It was known in its early days as Mountain View. Like much of California's land, Villa Park was, for many years, an agricultural area producing grapes, walnuts, apricots, and finally citrus, which was its major crop for about 60 years and is most closely associated with its development. It was the citrus ranchers and their families who molded Villa Park into a vital community and organized its incorporation. The citrus groves have yielded to the developers, but these pioneers have left an enduring legacy. The city is zoned for half-acre residential lots, which has been instrumental in making the city feel warmly residential, but also with plenty of green spaces. The city has an area of 2.1 square miles, a population of 6,000, and just over 2,000 homes. With the exception of one shopping center, the city is zoned for single-family residences, the average price of which is $2.4 million. Due to Villa Park's central location in the county and proximity to the freeway system, the wealth of cultural, social, recreational, business, and philanthropic activities that Orange County offers are all within easy access. But in 1997, a man arrived in Villa Park and blended into the community seamlessly. No one could have anticipated the havoc he would wreak on one unsuspecting family. On Friday, May 30th, 1997, a 911 call came into the Orange County Sheriff's Dispatch from an address in Villa Park. The distraught woman said that a man with a gun had come into the house and started shooting. Deputies were immediately sent to the 9600 block of Crestview Circle. Deputies entered the home with caution, walking through each room with guns drawn. Upstairs in the master bedroom closet, they found the body of a young woman who had obviously been shot. She was 33-year-old Janie Louise Pang, who lived at the family home with her husband, 30-year-old Danny Pang, and their six-year-old son. Also living there were Janie's two children from her prior marriage, a 17-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl. Janie's husband was on a business trip in the San Francisco area but the youngest boy and the maid's daughter were at the Pang home at the time. According to an LA Times article by journalist Lisa Richardson, it was the Pang family maid who called 911. She told detectives that she answered the door to a tall, well-dressed man who asked to speak to the owner. The maid told Janie Pang someone was at the door, and then the maid heard Janie come to the door with her youngest child at her side. She heard the man ask, Are you Miss Pang? Then she heard them chat casually for a few moments. The maid then heard Janie screaming. When the maid turned to look, she saw the man chasing Janie through the house with a gun and a briefcase still in his hand. The maid grabbed the two small children and ran out the back door. She used a neighbor's phone to call 911. Janie Ping's husband, Danny, who had immigrated from Taiwan as a young teen, had recently become a partner at Sky Capital Partners, a venture capital firm with offices in California and Taiwan. He was in the San Francisco area when he received a page from his mother to call her. His mother said there was bad news. She told him that she had gone to his house to check on the grandkids and saw that the house had been cordoned off by police. 
She then learned of Janie's death and broke the news to her son. According to LA Times journalist Nick Anderson, the day following the murder, Danny gave an interview from the home of his personal attorney and friend, William Baker. Danny was weeping at the memory of his wife and told reporters the family had moved to Villa Park just a couple years prior to start a new life after a series of disturbing incidents and harassing phone calls. He said that he had to get a restraining order against a stalker from their past. Danny also said that he and Janie were set to go to Hawaii that same day he was talking to them for a romantic getaway for their fifth anniversary. Danny also told reporters that on Wednesday, this was two days before Janie's murder, while he was out of town, someone had vandalized the car in their driveway. In response, Janie decided to install surveillance cameras, but she never got the chance. Danny asked for help in finding the killer, saying, My wife, she's the best wife, the best mom you could find. On KCBS TV, Danny begged for help in finding his wife's killer, saying, I would just like to plead to the public, if there is anybody who knows anything about this, please come to the police. You need to help us catch this guy. Villa Park was known to be an exceptionally safe neighborhood. However, according to journalist Lisa Richardson, neighbors had recently reported experiencing vandalism, including one vehicle's window getting shot out. Danny's personal attorney, William Baker, said they reported the vandalism and harassment referenced by Danny to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. The day after the murder, the Orange County Sheriff's Department released a composite sketch of the murderer. The maid had described the killer as a white man, approximately 5 feet 11, in his mid-30s. The suspect was tall with a medium build, smooth complexion, dark hair, a thin mustache, and wearing a business suit. The assailant was seen by a neighbor driving a maroon sedan and the sheriff's department reported that the man fled in a Ford Taurus or a Chevy Cavalier. The sheriff's department gave the public a phone number to call in case anybody could think of who it could be. Without giving details of his conversation with Danny Pang, Sheriff's Lieutenant William Francis said they would leave no stone unturned. Friends and neighbors were horrified by Janie's murder. On Saturday, the day following her murder, with her home still cordoned off as a crime scene, Someone left five bundles of long-stem red roses as a tribute to Janie, who had planted and loved the beautiful rose bushes on her property. Janie Louise Pang had come a long way from humble roots to her Villa Park neighborhood. She had dropped out of school in the 10th grade in order to marry her first husband at the age of 16. That marriage produced two children, but Janie and her husband eventually broke up after about five years. Exotic dancing at night allowed Janie to stay home with her children during the day. It was reported that she worked as a dancer on and off for several years. Janie met Danny Pang at the club where she was working, and the two eventually married. She was a dedicated mother and wife, as well as a skilled gardener, with roses in particular, and Janie often volunteered in her youngest son's kindergarten class. It was reported that Janie and her husband Danny were on friendly terms with Janie's former husband, and both children from her first marriage lived with them in their 3,800-square-foot Villa Park home. Because investigators were being tight-lipped about who the alleged stalker was, reporters immediately began going to the courthouse looking at public records for the information. According to an article in the LA Times by Scott Martell and Jeff Cass, published four days after Janie's murder, 
court records detailed a history of animosity between the Pangs and a man who met Janie during her days working in an exotic nightclub. Janie and Danny filed for a restraining order in 1993, just four years before her murder, against the man whose name was Honest Kudzi. Court papers accused him of trying to sabotage their marriage by making threats, leaving phony messages from women on Danny's answering machine, and at one point breaking into the Pang's home. Kudzi was accused of calling Janie and Danny's family members, friends, and business associates. An AP article in the Hanford Sentinel said that Janie accused Kudzi of stalking her and trying to extort money, but extortion charges were later dropped. Danny said that Kudzi's actions, which included an attempt to blackmail the couple out of $3,000, had destabilized their entire family, and that Kudzi had threatened to direct his efforts internationally by sending a photograph of Janie in a small bathing suit to Danny's grandfather in Taiwan. You know, Kath, do you remember me telling you about my stalker when I lived in D.C.? No, and I that is something you haven't you have not told me that. I would remember that. Are you sure? I'm a hundred percent certain. So I was, my sister, by the way, has a stalker in DC. What is it about DC? I then? don't know, but it's okay. He's so he's whatever. He's more like a bad nuisance than anything else. But anyway, no, I did not know. Like yours. he's not threatening to her kind of thing. Correct. Well, he is, but yeah. Like I would just characterize him as an extreme nuisance. But anyway, tell me about yours. I never so, heard this. I was working for a congressional office and one day I happened to knock my Diet Coke onto my keyboard. <laughs> So it shorted out. And at the time, and I don't know how Congress does it now, but when I work there, it was a private company that was off site from the Capitol complex that handled all of our stuff. So I called their helpline to talk to it. You're like Diet Coke emergency, Diet Coke emergency. And can you bring me a Diet Coke when you come help? (laughs) Extra ice. (laughs) Exactly. You know me so well. (laughs) But anyway, the guy that I was talking to on the phone, he actually walked me through it, you know, talked to me about how to do this, blah, blah, blah made sure they messengered over a keyboard right away so I could just hook it up. Everything was great. And then he just kept calling me because he was funny and I was laughing. There was something when I first talked to him that threw me off. But I have this guy who can help me now where I call his direct line and I don't have to go through like the process of getting a help desk person. Right. So I'm like, can talk to him. What's the harm? And so we probably talked for a few weeks and then he started doing the, we need to meet. We need to get together. He's clearly taking this in a different direction than I thought it was going. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I keep putting it off. I keep putting it off. And after a couple of weeks, he's like, why won't you meet me? Like, what's wrong with me? Why won't you meet me? And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with you. I just don't have time. So I started to notice that I was having problems with some of the work on my computer. Oh, my God. I could not trace it to him. Of right? course not. Well, you're not that technologically well, no, able, you know. But I it mean, was also like letters that I thought I'd saved were no longer there. That kind of thing. So okay. was it my fault? And so I second right. guessed it. I never went exactly to him. But then I was writing something on like I was in a document writing on it. And all of a sudden, the lines that I'm writing are being deleted just as I'm writing them. No way. And I knew it was him. I knew it was him. So I had to get the congressman involved. He actually wound up getting fired. But then he was pissed. Because he's screwing with actual congressional documents. Right. Yeah. Kind of of a big deal. Well, exactly. Which, you know, kind of goes with the whole he set off alarm bells for a reason. Right. But it was probably a couple weeks after he'd gotten fired and had left all these horrible voicemails for me on my congressional voicemail, by the way, that I picked up the phone, you know, this is Kathy. And I hear his voice and he said, you look beautiful today. Oh, Kathy, I was on the fourth floor. Oh, my God. That's so creepy. Of a congressional building. And of course, I'm next to a window and I whip around. I don't know what I was expecting to see. You, you were expecting to see a window washer with a camera. Exactly. Or a gun. I mean, <laughs> holy cow. 
you don't know. <laughs> but thankfully, he wasn't there. I think he was just honestly trying to be creepy. But what worked out really well for me is that I was actually in my last weeks there because remember, I moved back home to go to graduate school. Right. And it was one of those things where I just kind of picked up and left. And if he was a skilled enough hacker to have gotten into the United States Congress's personnel files, he wouldn't have been working for this company. So I was fairly certain he wouldn't have a forwarding address or anything like that. So I honestly was able to just disappear off the face of the earth and never saw him again or heard from him again. Wow. So that worked out really well for me because it was creepy. I did not know that. How what period of time was this? How over how many weeks would you say? Uh, It was over about three or four months. Oh, my God. Yeah, it went on for a long time. That's so disconcerting. The situation with Janie Pang and Danny Pang having the stalker, it resonates with me. Obviously, it was a little bit different, but my heart goes out to anybody who goes through it because it's the psychological messing with your mind. Right, the insecurity. Right, that gets to you. So getting back to the story, two weeks after receiving the restraining order paperwork from the Pangs, Kudzi filed his own restraining order against Janie and Danny, accusing them of owing him money and of Danny threatening him with physical harm. Kudzi said that Danny was jealous of him. According to Kudzi's court affidavit, Janie worked as a stripper at the Tropical Lake in Upland. This is in eastern Los Angeles County, right on the border with San Bernardino County, where she met Kudzi in June 1992. According to the affidavit, Kudzi said he purchased a photograph from the bar depicting her kissing him. And shortly thereafter, they began a dating relationship. The affidavit reportedly said that Janie dated Kudzi until she married Danny. The court papers also said that Kudzi loaned Janie $2,000 and another $400 to Danny. In his affidavit, Kudzi said Danny had told him he was a heavy gambler, both in Las Vegas and in the City of Commerce, which is a small city in Los Angeles County, and through these casinos, he was connected with the Chinese mafia. When Kudzi asked for his money back, he said Danny began threatening him. Needless to say, all this information was being reported by multiple print media outlets, as well as local television, and led to serious speculation about Janie's murder. News reporters sought out Kudzi family members for interviews and drew the public's attention to the family. But Sheriff's Lieutenant Ron Wilkerson declined to discuss the investigation in detail, saying the police were pursuing several avenues of inquiry. Then came a break in the case. While sheriff's investigators continued looking into potential suspects and interviewing witnesses, one individual who saw the composite sketch believed he knew the man. According to Daniel Coates of the California Business Journal, when the composite was published, a lawyer from Newport Beach called the sheriff's department. He said it matched the likeness of an attorney named Randy McDonald. Detectives looked deeper and found out that Randy McDonald's firm performed some legal work for Danny's company. Investigators then found someone who said they had seen Randy McDonald at Orange County's John Wayne Airport renting a car. Now investigators needed to talk to McDonald himself. When investigators went to talk to Randy McDonald, they found something that gave the investigation even greater focus. Within days of the shooting, McDonald went missing, leaving his wife, three children, and a law practice behind. Soon, San Francisco police got involved. It was reported by LA Times journalist Jack Leonard that the pursuit of McDonald ended at the Golden Gate Bridge. In an article by journalist Mai Tran of the LA Times, she said that McDonald went to San Jose, where he told his wife he had a business meeting. June 5th, 
six days after Janie's murder, was the last time his family would speak to him. On June 6, his wife received a package in the mail containing a loving letter from McDonald and all the important legal and financial documents, including a deed to their home. She immediately called his hotel, but was told that her husband had checked out. The next day, a jogger on the Golden Gate Bridge found a watch attached to a business card on the ledge of the bridge. The business card was for Randy McDonald. It was reported that there was a handwritten note on the back of the card that said the watch should be returned to McDonald's wife, who purchased it for him. McDonald's wallet was found in nearby bushes, and the car he rented was abandoned in a lot nearby. Investigators believed McDonald jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge out of remorse for killing Janie Pang. Law enforcement continued to interview people, but they did not develop any other leads on the killer, and the case went cold. Then, four years later, the case was reinvigorated. According to a July 24, 2001 article by journalist Jack Leonard, somebody called the sheriff's department with a tip. They had seen Randy McDonald twice in West Los Angeles. According to the Orange County Sheriff's Department, he was seen taking a BMW to a repair shop and was also seen the same day at the federal building on Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood. The tipster told police the license plate of the BMW and the sheriff's department asked for the public's help. As it turned out, investigators had been suspicious when McDonald's body did not turn up in the San Francisco Bay, and they had never stopped looking for him. In fact, before the 2001 sighting in Los Angeles, a call from Salt Lake City Police came in. There, police were investigating a tip that a newly arrived lawyer named Robert Belmont was actually Randy McDonald. Orange County investigators flew to Utah, but they missed him. He had packed and gone without leaving a forwarding address. In his Utah apartment, they found hair dye, mailbox agreements, letterheads with fake names, and a book entitled How to Completely Disappear and Never Be Found. It was reported that around 1999, this was two years after Janie's murder, a woman named Crystal reached out to a friend of McDonald's who was a judge. Crystal introduced herself and said McDonald was depressed and needed psychiatric help. The judge had known McDonald since their college days. He tried to get McDonald to turn himself in, saying he would go with him to the sheriff's office, but he was never taken up on that offer. It was also reported that one year before the Los Angeles sighting, so this is 2000, McDonald reached out to some former law associates for help. Tom Malcolm, who worked with McDonald at the law firm of what was then Jones Day, Revis, and Pogue, said he received a call from his old friend, Randy McDonald, seeking advice. According to Malcolm, McDonald was in horrible condition and felt that he was persona non grata. Malcolm told McDonald that there were a lot of people who had compassion for him and wanted to help. At that time, Malcolm reportedly had no idea that McDonald was wanted for murder. McDonald, who never asked Malcolm for money, never called back. I think it's time to thank our friend Bill for suggesting this episode. He actually worked for Jones Day at one point. And I believe Randy McDonald had already left the firm when Bill started. But of course, I'm sure it was part of the firm lore. Exactly. So thanks, Bill. And we know you're not on Patreon yet. So (laughs) get cracking there, friend. (laughs) We know you pretend not to listen to us, but you secretly do. (laughs) 
As time passed, various sightings had been reported, but they were never able to pinpoint where McDonald was staying. So the sighting in Los Angeles with a license plate was the best lead they had so far. According to an article by Jack Leonard and Mai Tran, during the four years that detectives searched for Newport Beach attorney Randy McDonald, he was actually receiving Social Security disability checks. The Social Security Administration issued checks in his real name. Now, Kath, they're not allowed to disclose information to law enforcement unless they actually have a warrant. So presented with a warrant, Social Security gave the investigators the name of the bank account held in McDonald's name where he collected the money. You know, Kath, I read in one of the articles that he actually had the checks mailed to the bank, but I only read that one time, so I'm not 100% sure. Okay. And I assume it was a newspaper article? Correct. Everything about this episode is from the newspapers. So there was a lot of information that I had to piece together and try to re-verify and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so although investigators did not reveal names, it was also reported that some of McDonald's friends had deposited money into this account for him. Once they learned of the bank account, detectives reviewed surveillance videos from when withdrawals were made on the account. The video showed a woman withdrawing $1,500 and she was identified as Crystal, believed to be the same woman who had previously called the judge about McDonald's mental state. Right. Detectives determined that she lived in Reseda, which is in northern L.A. County. Also known as the San Fernando Valley. She's a valley girl. And they were able to determine, I'm sure by staking it out, that it was her house in which McDonald was hiding. Police show up to her house with a search warrant and Crystal in true Valley Girl fashion, reportedly kicked one of the investigators (laughs) (laughs) and had to be wrestled to the floor. Neighbors saw her being dragged into a police cruiser, shouting that they had arrested the wrong man. Then 52-year-old Randy McDonald was arrested alongside Crystal on August 9th, 2001, and sent to the Orange County Jail. He was much thinner and less healthy looking than when he had left four years prior. Rarely does a life on the run equate... Suit your skin care. (laughs) And health needs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kath, going through all these news articles, it was kind of funny because, of course, you know, reporters are doggedly determined. And so they started canvassing the neighborhood and interviewing people like, what's Crystal like? And they're all her best friends or her worst enemies. Exactly. She was either unexpectedly wonderful or, you know, a serial killer. Right. Anyway, one one of them described her as a French expatriate who was frequently seen walking her dog and complaining about various medical problems. Oh. (laughs) I would be super sad if that were me. (laughs) I'd like to know how Randy McDonald met her. Yeah, I don't know. But they were clearly an item because she... Oh, really? I, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm not 100% sure because you know how I like to read between the lines and make things up? It's your understanding. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But she appeared in subsequent court appearances, you know, supporting him. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. After McDonald's arrest, it was reported that he bounced around from state to state, changing identities as often as he changed his underwear. (laughs) Come on, that's Which was less than once a day. (laughs) Go ahead. He would scan obituaries in the towns he was in so he could assume the identity of the recently deceased. He also lost weight and shaved his head. I read somewhere when he was arrested where he was using the alias Kevin O'Connor. And do you ever watch Ask This Old House? I do not. Do you know what show that is? I've heard of it, but I think oh. that was from you or your husband. Yeah, my husband's totally addicted to it. Like, if he gets really early in the morning and there's no soccer matches to watch before he has to work, he'll watch Ask This Old House. Anyway, Kevin O'Connor's one of the hosts. He loves the show. <laughs> <laughs> the Orange County Sheriff said McDonald went to great lengths to make sure his family was somewhat financially secure, even though he abandoned them. They were able to collect a $650,000 life insurance policy. And everyone is thinking, Kathy with a K, what's that in today's dollars? Do tell. That would be $1.2 million. That's a lot of coaching. Yeah. Cheddar. Journalist Mai Tran reported the detectives admitted they did not fully understand the motive, but now believe that McDonald was trying to carry out a robbery at the Pang House. They refused to publicly discuss the evidence against him. Danny's personal lawyer and friend, William Baker, said that McDonald had no substantive contact with Janie or Danny Pang. Attorneys with whom McDonald previously worked were interviewed and said McDonald was a skilled attorney with impeccable credentials and did not appear to be a violent man. You know, Kath, I did a little bit of research on him, and I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. He went to Duke Law School, I believe, and was um, an editor on what I believe is their law review. Like, I think it was it was called like the Duke Law Journal or something. So he was no slacker. No kidding. Randy McDonald was charged with first degree murder and attempted robbery. Trial began in September of 2002, over five years after Janie Pang's murder. According to journalist Mai Tran, prosecutor Walt Schwarm told the seven man, five woman jury that McDonald chased Janie around her house and shot her. She was found dead in a closet crouched in the fetal position. The prosecutor told the jury that Danny was a client of the firm for which McDonald worked. Danny owed the law firm $20,000, of which McDonald was to receive 4000 The prosecutor pointed out that just days after the killing, McDonald fled. This was the act of a guilty man. He described McDonald as a manipulative man who murdered his client's wife, abandoned his family, then faked his death by pretending to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. The prosecutor said it was a ruse designed to make people think he died so that he could start a new, rich life in Utah. Defense attorneys Michael Mulfetta and Kenneth Reed put forth a very different picture. 
They said McDonald was overwhelmed by trying to keep up with the Newport Beach lifestyle, a lifestyle he wanted nothing to do with. Defense attorney said McDonald was in debt and depressed and intended to kill himself, but at the last moment decided not to jump. Instead, he decided on a simpler life in Utah, totally unaware that he was wanted for murder in Orange County. His attorney said, he's not running from law enforcement. He's running from his life in Newport Beach. You hear about that so often where it is a case in some neighborhoods and some cities where it's keeping up with the Joneses. Oh, total. Newport is so like you have to not care about that kind of crap. Like raising children in Newport Beach, I think would be so hard. Yeah. It's like I tell my kids when, you know, when you go buy a house, pick a middle class neighborhood. You want middle class neighborhoods with a bunch of kids. Don't go fancy. Like when you're young, you think you want fancy. Right. You want that big house. Yeah. With all the, all the totally. Trappings. Like the house I would have chosen at 35 would have been very different than what I would choose now, you know, at 37. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you just turned 38. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But no, it's totally true. Yeah. I mean, I still want a really big house, but, <laughs> but that's really just me. <laughs> I would make you have lots of parties. I would have lots of parties. According to the LA Times story, on the same day McDonald was on the bridge, his wife received a package. Other than the previously referenced letter, it contained two cassette tapes, documents transferring property ownership, and two books on how to cope with suicide. The tapes were played for jurors, and McDonald laid out their finances and told his wife he took $2,500 from their checking account. He said, I just wanted to throw myself a party for my last two days on earth. I'm sorry if I put you in a horrible position. I just feel sick about it. Defense attorney Mulfetta presented witnesses who discussed McDonald's depression. Even McDonald's son testified saying, I still love him. Absolutely. I feel anger toward the situation. I feel anger and abandonment, but it doesn't diminish that I love him. His son said his dad was not capable of hurting anyone. McDonald's former wife, who is now remarried, also took the stand. She had been McDonald's sweetheart from their days at Sunny Hills High School in Fullerton, California, and this is not too far from Villa Park. She was called by the prosecution to establish financial motive for the murder. And Kath, this was the most difficult thing. In all the articles I read, it said the prosecution had a thin case on motive. So they called her to the stand and she testified that when McDonald left the family, they were in a difficult situation financially. She said they owed $65,000 in credit card debt. And in addition to that, the McDonald's had to come up with tuition for their children's school. But McDonald's wife also testified that he was not capable of hurting anyone. According to an LA Times article by journalist Monty Morin, Randy McDonald took the stand. McDonald told jurors that he absolutely did not kill Janie Pang, but he did seriously intend to kill himself. He said he looked down when he was on the bridge and knew he couldn't do it, that he was a coward. He said he had a Newport Beach lifestyle and spent every dollar he made. He said he married a woman who came from social status and felt like he never met her family's expectations. McDonald testified that at the time of Janie's death, he was with a $400 prostitute looking for a little emotional connection. The prosecutor scoffed at his alibi and said, if everyone was able to give that as an excuse when they committed a crime, the system would break down. McDonald told the jury that he was a man trapped in a deep 
personal crisis and a loveless marriage. He said he did not believe he was a successful attorney. He said he turned to the personal ads and prostitutes for companionship. And Cathy was reported that various business ventures failed and he was in a financially desperate situation. McDonald also told the jury that after he left, he went through obituaries of local papers for aliases and took jobs as a meat plant laborer, a construction worker, and once worked as a paralegal. In an effort to introduce reasonable doubt, the defense criticized the investigation and pointed the finger elsewhere. They pointed the finger at Danny Pang. Defense attorneys elicited testimony that Janie had seen a divorce attorney. Mark Mermont of the Wall Street Journal wrote about the Pang's marriage being stormy. The police were called to their home four times for domestic disturbance complaints, including a 1993 incident in which Janie said she was afraid Danny was going to kill her. She also told police her husband had drained value from her parents' home and spent it on gambling, women, and alcohol. She said her husband once had broken her nose, forced her to withdraw $70,000 from the bank, and gambled it away in one night. Defense attorneys argued that Janie was killed by a hitman hired by her husband. And Kath, in May of 1997, the same journalist, Mark Mermont, he wrote that Janie had hired an investigative agency, which, according to court records, observed her husband holding hands with another woman. The day after this investigative agency had seen Danny holding hands with some other woman, Janie had actually scheduled a meeting with the investigator at noon. But it was shortly before this meeting that the doorbell rang at the Pang's home and Janie was killed. According to LA Times journalist Christopher Gofford and Stuart Pfeiffer, the most explosive moment during the trial came when an Orange County Sheriff's detective testified about a 2001 report that she had in her possession for a year but had failed to divulge. The report was compiled by the FBI and the Orange County and L.A. County Sheriff's Departments. It concluded that Danny Pang had a possible role in his wife's death. The report raised the prospect that Danny worked as a money man, meaning a money launderer, for the United Bamboo Triad, an Asian crime gang from Taiwan. They were reportedly involved in drug smuggling, human trafficking, and assassinations. At trial, the report was discussed but placed under seal so the public could not access it. The report said money laundering through casinos and bringing cash into the country may have been the responsibility of Danny Pang. Now, Kath, in the report, it said agents found no proof that Pang was connected to this gang, but recommended that steps be taken, such as subpoenaing his telephone records and examining his business records and that kind of thing. But during cross-examination by defense attorneys, the detective on the stand admitted she had not followed these recommendations. Busted! I know. What role? And I have no idea what the explanation was for this, but I read an article where the defense attorney was interviewed, and I can't remember if it was in a California bar journal or something, but I read an article, and the guy basically said it was like the smoking gun. And he went through it and impeached the investigator who had previously testified about, you know, how wonderful the investigation was, and they did everything right, and blah, blah, blah. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. Yes. <laughs> And then he confronted her with this report and was like, boom, 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 boom. And at some point after the trial, the judge said to him, you don't ever get days in court like this. Like this smoking gun concept is so rare. Right. But he had it. 
the court imposed a gag order on the trial attorney. So the prosecution and the defense attorneys couldn't talk about the case. But Danny Pink's personal lawyer, who was not directly involved in questioning any witnesses or anything like that, spoke to the press. According to journalist Mai Tran, attorney Baker said that Danny was not connected with organized crime and that it was ridiculous. He said Danny and Janie had a very happy marriage and were just about to celebrate a wedding anniversary in Hawaii. He also said the abuse alleged in the testimony was by a different Danny Pang. On October 4th, 2002, about a month after trial began, the judge declared a mistrial. Ten out of 12 jurors voted in favor of acquittal. A month later, in open court, the Orange County District Attorney's Office dismissed murder charges against Randy McDonald without prejudice. And what this means is since there was not an acquittal, dismissing without prejudice would allow the district attorney's office to refile charges if they found new evidence. Prosecutors said they were not likely to get a unanimous verdict on the circumstantial evidence on a retrial. They said Janie Pang's murder case would remain open. Danny Pang's attorney was quoted as saying, it's good news for Randy, but it's frustrating news for everyone else because somewhere in the world, the murderer is sitting and laughing because he got away. Fast forward seven years, Danny Pang is now running a company called Private Equity Management Group Incorporated based in Irvine, California, which is also in Orange County. In 2009, this is seven years after the trial ended, the Securities and Exchange Commission filed a civil action against the now 42-year-old Danny Pang, essentially accusing him of a Ponzi scheme. The SEC complaint said that he defrauded investors out of millions of dollars. It was alleged that he used investors' money to buy out life insurance policies for older people in anticipation of reaping greater rewards as beneficiaries when they died. However, when these investments did not pay off, Danny allegedly used new investor money to make interest payments to earlier investors, a classic Ponzi scheme tactic. Kath, I read one estimate that $83 million was defrauded. And I also read that a court-appointed receiver, this is somebody who basically takes over the company and starts like an accounting and all this kind of stuff. They do more of a forensic accounting. They, exactly. They said that Pang used investor funds as his personal piggy bank. And they gave examples such as $35 million on a fleet of jets, $1 million on a cruise for employees, and $1.5 million on a China vacation for his staff. Well, he's a generous employer. He was generous, exactly. That same year, in July 2009, Danny was indicted in Orange County for allegedly attempting to avoid currency reporting laws. He would write checks for just under $10,000 and have friends and associates cash them for him. He allegedly used the roughly $300,000 he got from doing this to buy gold, which he kept in a hidden safe in his bedroom. And Kath, about this, I read that he wanted hard gold just in case. I think you it's know, a smart thing. And Okay, but think about this. Like, this is 2009, and the, you know, housing crisis and the stock market imploded in 2008. And FDIC only insures up to $250,000. Exactly. So his gold, of course, was taken by the receiver. Everything was taken from him. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Danny's personal and company assets were frozen, and he surrendered his passport. In September of 2009, just a few months after his legal troubles started, paramedics were called to Danny's Newport Beach home and found him not breathing. 
He was rushed to the hospital where he was revived but died the next day. Although it was reported that the cause of death was inconclusive, the coroner reported that foul play had been ruled out. According to an Associated Press article by Gillian Flaccus, most of Danny's defrauded investors were Taiwanese, and investors were left frustrated and federal authorities empty-handed. But his death revived old questions about the flashy businessman's past, including speculation at McDonald's trial that Danny was tied to a violent Asian crime syndicate. Needless to say, people began to wonder whether an Asian gang had him killed. A spokesman for the Peng family said that for the past five months, Danny was subjected to a relentless attack of innuendo and false allegations and was denied an opportunity to defend himself. It is distressing that Danny had to endure such a mean-spirited assault on his character and reputation and the seizure of all of his property without ever having been found liable for anything and without ever having had a chance to defend himself. We remain steadfast in our belief that Danny would have been vindicated if he had been given the opportunity. In January of 2010, nearly four months after his death, it was reported that Danny Pang committed suicide by taking an overdose of painkillers and other drugs. The cause of death was combined intoxication from seven drugs found in his system. So, this episode had one suicide alleged to be fake and one actual suicide suspected of being a gang killing. But ultimately, we are left with the fact that Janie Pang's killer was never brought to justice. Her children were forced to grow up without a mother who, by all accounts, loved them deeply. Janie's case remains unsolved and joins the ranks of thousands of other cold cases. So we hope you enjoyed the story. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Join us on TikTok. Jinx. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> Kathy. <laughs> All right. What else? As Kathy started to say, join us on TikTok at Killer Destinations Pod. Uh-huh. If you haven't already, you can meet our newest team member and we will be adding more content all the time. And, or- in, the, and in the very near future. We are going to respond to somebody's email request of us by giving the jalapeno popper dip recipe that is like freaking crack. It is. And you'll see us making it and enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And then, haha, you can't smell it. <laughs> There's no, what do you call it? Smell. No smell-o-vision. That's right. <laughs> and by the way, let's see, did our Patreon episode drop or no? It did. Okay. It dropped earlier this week. All right, Perfect. Enjoy the bloopers on Patreon and enjoy the newest episode. Yes.